This inaugural episode of Golden Age, an award season podcast from TV Guide, is brought to you by TV Guide and the TV Guide Podcast Network. If this is the first time you're listening to a TV Guide podcast, welcome. We've launched a bunch of entertaining shows over the last year, and we've got way more to come in the next few months. From recap series like The Survivor Brothers, a weekly show all about CBS's hit reality series Survivor, to the forthcoming podcast All I Want for Christmas Is This Podcast, a twice-weekly limited series debuting soon about Netflix and Hallmark holiday movies, TV Guide is your home for quality podcasting entertainment. So subscribe to our shows wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure to check out tvguide.com for more original content, and follow us on social media, at TV Guide on Twitter, at TV Guide on Instagram, and youtube.com slash TV Guide. Uh, hello and welcome to Golden Age. This is an award season podcast from TV Guide, and this is our inaugural episode. I'm so excited for you to join me here. Uh, my name is Christopher Rosen. I'm editor-in-chief of TV Guide and an amateur award season prognosticator. And uh, throughout the next few months, we're going to really look at the ups and downs of award season during what I feel like is a very transformative time in the industry. Total game changer there. I'm sure you've never heard that before. But it turns out that streaming platforms are really prominent and popular now, and a lot of brands have their own platforms. And they're creating original content. This is probably, honestly, the first time you're ever hearing this because there's never been a podcast about entertainment, uh, award season, or movies before. So this is the first one. I'm shocked there's been such a market inefficiency here uh, around the topic, but I'm really glad you joined me. Uh, what's that? Oh, no, there's dozens of podcasts about all of these things. Uh, well, listen, uh, kidding aside, I recently saw the movie Zombieland 2 Double Tap in that movie, uh, which is not good. Jesse Eisenberg's character opens up with some voiceover, and he says something along the lines of, there's a lot of zombie adjacent and themed entertainment nowadays, and we're so glad you've chosen us to spend some time with. Uh, to paraphrase that bad movie, I would say there's a lot of movie-going podcasts and podcasts about award season and entertainment in general and Netflix and all the streaming services, but I'm glad you've chosen uh, to join me here on Golden Age. Uh, coming up later in the show, I'm going to be talking to Jordan Hoffman, a film critic, member of the New York Film Critics Circle. He's written a many a review for tvguide.com on the Netflix movies. Uh, he's written for Vanity Fair and the Times of Israel and a bunch of other places. Jordan's a great critic, and I have him coming in to talk about a couple of Netflix movies that I think you know, will be part of the conversation, one more so than the other. Throughout award season, uh, coming out today on Netflix after a limited theatrical run is Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy, and uh, Steven Soderbergh's The Laundromat, which stars Meryl Streep, Antonio Banderas, Gary Oldman, uh, Cavalcade of Stars, and it's Soderbergh's second Netflix movie of 2019. Uh, both of those movies had theatrical runs. We'll talk a little about that and what they maybe mean or don't mean for award season. But first, I just wanted to like set the stage for what the hell we're doing here. Last year, of course, Netflix made a big play for an Oscar in Best Picture uh, with Roma, Alfonso Cuaron's uh, semi-autobiographical black and white movie uh, that's really had a big Ballyhooed premiere, kind of really Netflix put a lot of weight behind it, ended up losing Best Picture to Green Book, a movie that does not exist and that people don't like. Um but Netflix came really close, and then this year they're really kind of like upping the ante. They have three legitimate Best Picture contenders, The Irishman from Martin Scorsese, Marriage Story from Noah Baumbach, and The Two Popes. 
Um, but, you know, with Netflix kind of encroaching on traditional movie going, a lot of people were up in arms, especially because the Netflix movies don't have a traditional theatrical window. I don't mean to bore you to death, and if you're listening to this podcast, you definitely understand what this means. But for those who don't, uh, most movies have a theatrical window that they're guaranteed the theaters have about three months of exclusivity, and then later that'll premiere on home markets. Netflix is like, screw that. We're going to have 30 days, maybe max, and then it's going to debut on our platform. So theaters are kind of stonewalling Netflix, and Netflix in turn has to find ways to four-wall theaters. Uh, they rented out the Belasco Theater in Broadway uh, for Irishmen. They reopened the Paris Theater in New York uh, for Marriage Story, and then like some boutique theaters and indie theaters that are running these movies as well before they launch on the platform. Anyway, it's a very transformative time, and one of the people who was really unhappy maybe last year with Netflix in general was Steven Spielberg. With regard to Oscars, Steven Spielberg really was pushing for a rule change that would require movies to have more of an exclusive theatrical window of at least a month for major Oscars. He said this earlier this year. I hope all of us really continue to believe that the greatest contributions we can make as filmmakers is to give audiences the motion picture theatrical experience. I'm a firm believer that movie theaters need to be around forever. Well, you know, I mean, I use that as the promo for this podcast. I just think it's a fascinating quote. I think Spielberg you know, really has really wanted the theatrical experience. And, you know, he kind of is like pushing uh, studios and stuff to like make these movies hit theaters and this and that. But I mean, the fact of the matter is even Spielberg saw what has happened coming. And, you know, last few weeks we've seen uh, Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola dive in and just trash Marvel movies. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola called them despicable. Uh, Scorsese said it's not cinema and he compared it to a theme park. But I mean, you'd be hard pressed to argue with Scorsese's main point, which is that people don't go to the movies anymore in the way that they used to go. Uh, they go because it's an event. So I think, you know, what Scorsese is saying is that, like, movies now, to get people to go to the theater, you really need some kind of hook, some kind of peg. You're not just going to go. People just don't go to the movies and say, I just want to go see a movie. They're going to see a specific thing. And I think, you know, the way people maybe watch things on Netflix is they just open it up and are like, what am I going to watch today? So that is how the theater kind of has flipped. I think when I was a kid, we used to just go to the movies on a Friday night and say, like, I'm just going to go see this or what's coming out this weekend. I guess we'll see that. Nowadays, people don't do that. So now Netflix is kind of leading the charge. And this year, they've got a bunch of movies that could really contend for Oscars. Next year, you're going to have Disney Plus fully ensconced in the you know streaming world. You're going to have Apple TV Plus, whatever the hell that ends up being. Universal and NBC has the Peacock. All of those platforms are going to be able to debut movies and maybe movies that they would have traditionally thrown into the theater maybe 10 years ago or five years ago or even last year and tried for the best. So that's the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about on this podcast over the next, you know, between now and the Academy Awards, which are early this year in February. So thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate it. Please subscribe and please rate and review and tell your friends and share this podcast on social media. I'd love to get people listening to this beyond just uh, my friends, who I hope will listen as well. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break and come back with Jordan Hoffman, who will talk to us all about uh, Dolomite Is My Name, which debuts on Netflix. And then later in the show, we're going to talk about the laundromat, Steven Soderbergh's new movie, and a lot of the controversy around Meryl Streep's performance in that movie. Uh, so stay tuned for that, and we'll be right back. All right, we're back here on Golden Age, a TV Guide award season podcast, and I'm joined by Jordan Hoffman. Jordan? Hey, Chris. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, Jordan, a great film critic here. He does stuff for TV Guide, obviously. A member of the New York Film Critics Circle, uh, Vanity Fair, uh, Times of Israel. You're all over the place. 
I'm honored to be here on the inaugural uh, episode. Yeah, you know? it's really great. We're going to talk about uh, Netflix's Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy. And uh, coming up later, we'll hit The Laundromat with Steven Soderbergh. But let's first start uh, with Dolomite Is My Name, out uh, today on Netflix. It's just screened in theaters over the last like few weeks. Yeah. I did not get to see it in the theater. Yeah, it looked. You did. You went to a screening. Oh, it's really of it. good. I've got. And I know you loved it. You raved about it on TVGuide.com in your review. One of the best of the year. You called it. It is um, uh, the one of the best movies of the year. Yeah. I, maybe not the top ten, but the sure. top fifteen sure. for sure. And uh, I went in thinking it was going to be light and and silly, and it yes. is very funny. It's yeah. got Eddie Murphy as as Rudy Ray Moore, yeah. um, and it's written by. Um, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who make these funny movies, and the director is um, Craig Brewer. Craig Brewer, yeah, yes. H- hustle and flow guy, and it's um, it, it is light entertainment. I mean, you you come and ha- but it's it's touching. Like at the end of this movie, I actually like I I kind of teared up. Wow, you really really care about this, and it's it's so good. And Eddie Murphy is. Perfect. And as I wrote it in, in my review, when I first heard, oh, Eddie Murphy's doing a biopic of, of Rudy Ray Moore, and I'm like, come on now. Um, Eddie Murphy's like, too, like people are going to be doing biopics of Eddie Murphy someday. You know, what, he shouldn't be hanging his hat, especially now because he hasn't had a hit in quite some time. Should he, this be his comeback movie? And five minutes in, I'm like, this is the part he was born to play. Wow. It's so good. Uh, the movie, the basic premise, if you've never heard of Rudy Ray yeah, Moore. Yeah, give us some or, context or, or, or on, on Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, Rudy, Rudy Ray Moore was a schlep of a, of a comic in the late 1960s in Los Angeles. African-American dude, obviously. He was working. He tried to get a career going as a, as a, as a dancer, as a musician. He was doing like um, hosting basically like talent night at clubs. And he couldn't catch a break. He wasn't good. His material was old. And he was working in a record shop in L.A. Um, and it's, they show this in the film. And I did a little bit of research. And apparently it's all true. Um, and there were a lot of colorful characters that came into this L.A. record shop. And one was this old wino who would come in and, like, he was sort of a street preacher. And he would talk, as he says, um, the character in the film, he's like, when, when they was like, oh, get that old wino out here, the guy would say, I'm giving you the oral history of the Afro-American experience, you know? And he would tell these stories. And he and he had this character that he kept talking about, this guy, Dolomite, who lived a, um, uh, you know, uh, he had a, uh, you know, he was a, uh, you know, one of these characters, like a pimp and a hustler. Sure. And, and, you know, he's sort of this legendary figure. And when so when Rudy Ray Moore is talking about it with his buddies, and they're all also striving musicians and actors and whatnot. You know, Craig Robinson is one of the dudes and and whatnot. Um, they're like, oh, yeah, my grandfather used to tell Dolomite stories, you know. So it's so Rudy Ray Moore then assumes the character of Dolomite. And he's, you know, he's kind of a meek guy in life, but he puts on, like, this crazy outfit, and he's got, like, a cane and a hat, and he's acting all tough, and he tells these bawdy stories. And, and they're all in rhyme, you know. Um and they're hilarious. Right. And so this becomes a thing. And then he starts recording records and they're a hit <laughs> underground. And then finally he decides I'm going to make a film. And and there's a, a long trajectory of how he discovers this. And everybody's like, you can't make a Dolomite movie. You don't know how to make a movie. So the, the bulk of this movie is him making the movie Dolomite, which is now a cult classic. And it's, it sort of becomes a little bit like the disaster artist or even Ed Wood. And, for, of course, Larry and sure. Scott wrote Ed Wood. And there are some similarities there. And it's just you just love this guy so much. He has so much self-determination. He like he he's never says die. And unlike Ed Wood, which is a movie that also is like you kind of respect him for believing in himself and having a posse that love him and just putting just doing the work. 
Ed Wood's movies are horrible. Right. I mean, we love them because they're horrible. Dolomite's movies, they're not exactly uh, craftily made. There certainly are a lot of scenes. They're very inexpensively made. And the first one, as you see in this movie, is made with uh, film students from, from UCLA who barely know what they're doing. Uh, they're great because they're just so enjoyable. And, and then Dolomite then became a hit. And he became a, a legend right. and some say the godfather of hip-hop. You know, sure. in, in the 19, late 1980s and early 1990s, Dolomite was on um, – like I first heard of Dolomite because I was a, you know, a Jewish kid in New Jersey listening to um, Big Daddy Kane, right? And there's a whole Dolomite rap with on the Big Daddy Kane album. So, you know, that's Dolomite today, and right. it's all in this film. And it is from from beginning to end, it's really enjoyable. And Eddie Murphy is just fantastic. He is definitely like putting an effort into this movie. In a way that maybe yeah. Eddie Murphy hasn't done in a la- long time. Uh, I'm probably a little older than than many people listening. Eddie Murphy was so big at the time. He was the the king of entertainment. There yeah. was nobody bigger. Uh, like, who do you even think he'd be like now? I mean, is there even a comp? It, it doesn't feel like not there honestly is. Not from the world is. of comedy. No, no, not from the world of comedy. He was he was beloved as he did his stand up albums, which were huge. Every kid had the tapes. Right. Uh, he did specials. He hosted like um, events, like he hosted the MTV Awards, and it was a, that put the MTV Awards on the map. Um, concert films, and then like movies like Beverly Hills Cop, right? Just giant hits. Yeah, just one right after another. Um, yeah, there really isn't anybody else like that today. Um, and he eclipsed his his peers. He eclipsed Richard Pryor. I mean, Richard Pryor, who was probably more groundbreaking. And who that who Eddie Murphy idolized um, never didn't achieve the uh, level of success that that Eddie Murphy did, and then um, and he was still great up until like you know the Clumps is really funny right, and uh, I like I like the Clumps <laughs> sure Nutty Professor no the first Nutty Professor is I mean you could like good. here I pulled up his thing we'll just go yeah. through it quick I mean this is a run that most star this is just an unheard of run forty eight yeah. hours first movie yeah. Then Trading Places. So already like two classics. Absolutely, yeah. While he's doing this, he's on SNL and is the biggest star SNL has ever had, probably, I would argue. I mean, SNL was like circling the drain before he came back. So he single-handedly saved SNL. It was like, you know, Ed Grimley was not going to save SNL. (laughs) So 82, 48 hours, 83 Trading Places, 84 Beverly Hills Cop. I, and which was a monster success. monster hit, like yeah. biggest R rating movie that, ever that for was a like, long time. That was as imp- as an old man who remembers Beverly Hills sure. Cop in the theaters. It was as big as Indiana Jones, right? Which is crazy because it's just a kind of a dumb cop movie with Correct. some jokes. It's not that great, right. but I'm telling you, if you were a kid back then, you would argue whether you liked Beverly Hills Cop more or Raiders of the Lost Ark. It yeah. was in the it was same a ballpark. gigantic movie. Yeah. And then he's got Golden Child, which is maybe bad, but I mean, at the time was like a it's big huge. deal. Yeah. I mean, certainly when I was a kid, like it was like, oh, Golden Child is yeah. good. I don't think it is now. It's terrible. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop two. Yeah. Then Coming to America. Oh my God. That's that is from that is through eighty eight. So in like six years, he's put up like just a Hall of Fame run of movies. Absolutely. And he's like the biggest star in the world. Yeah. And then after that, you're right, like it kind of dips a little. He does uh Harlem Nights, another forty eight hours, boomerang, and then he goes into like the family stuff with Nutty Professor in the nineties. He right. does voices in Mulan. What, what year was Bowfinger? Bowfinger was ninety uh 99 20 years ago Bowfinger's so good Bowfinger is great another Hollywood kind of like insider movie about like making movies kind of like Dolomite is my name and then he just drops off here I mean like you know The Haunted Mansion uh, Pluto Nash Meet Dave Uh, uh, 
his basically in the last 15 years, he hasn't really done anything that's... He lost his mojo, and the thing is, what he probably could have done in retrospect was, uh, you know, because the, the, the big studio, they didn't know what to do with him at this right. point, because he had done the family thing, and he was kind of toast at that point. He wasn't going to be taken seriously in, in a sort of an adult comedy at that point. What he could have done was to do the pivot to, like, the indie film Sundance thing. Right. Which he probably didn't want to do, because... Those movies are made for $1.3 million, and he makes $6.5 million just himself on a, as right. a salary you right. know, or more, God knows. You oh, know? And also, so. like, he doesn't – I mean, if you look at his movies, he's never done, like, a – you could argue he's never done, like, a movie – like, a character movie or so. You know, he's, all of the comedies are, like, big, big comedies right. when col- comedies were, like, being made on a bigger level. Yeah, he never and, like, went the Pieces of April route. Or right. the, um, I mean, the only thing know. on here we could talk about a little is Dreamgirls, which right. he pl- took a supporting role and, like, really did play, like, the awards game. Right. And, and then he just got trashed. He didn't win. And he took that, you know. He was a little bit uh, – he, he didn't play the game too nicely. And he was he, unhappy with that was, result. He, he went um, – yeah, so that was what year was Dreamgirls? Like two thousand four, two thousand six. Oh, that late? Okay, so yeah, he did sort of say, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna swallow my pride a little bit. I'm gonna be a supporting player in a in a prestige picture. Dreamgirls is not great, but it is solid, you know. Right. And uh, play the supporting role and eat eat a little crow and 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 be the supporting character. And and damn it, I'm gonna get the recognition and he did get nominated he did and he lost he, to alan arkin for little miss sunshine and it was which is funny i just mentioned the pieces of april yeah. little miss sunshine right i mean that's kind of like and, and he stormed out of the theater he was not into it like kind of like yeah. bill murray losing to sean penn for a loss in translation of mystic river a similar result where you have a guy playing like yeah. a serious more serious role striving for some kind of uh you know yeah. like uh, recognition and acknowledgement and getting yeah. snubbed away. And the other thing is I believe he had Norbit in the theaters at the time. That was like a big thing, and that was like the narrative too, that like Norbit sunk his thing where maybe he right. wasn't necessarily as liked or for whatever reason, you know, these things are all political and that's yeah. why he lost. After that, yeah, he so really like the, kind the pe- of like pe- retreated, yeah, I feel like. The people who – I'm going to eat a Starburst. Do it. That's fine. The people who were like, we're, this is our world, awards world. You're, you're coming in here out of nowhere. Right. Having done Meet Dave and Pluto Nash, you're on our turf now. You got to kiss our ring, right? And he was like, and he's like, nah. no, I'm still making a zillion dollars doing Norbit, which right. I, I never saw Norbit, but I'm sure. It's I mean, he did here with the fun. run after Dreamgirls, Norbit, a third Shrek movie, Meet Dave, which was a huge flop. Imagine that, which was a huge flop. Another Shrek movie, mm. uh, Tower Heist, Ugh. which was a disaster. And in that time, it was when he was going to host the Oscars, and mm. Brett Ratner was going to produce. And they were all kind of tied together. Brett Ratner got fired because he made a homophobic slur. Right. And then Eddie backed down or just stepped down. And then Eddie Murphy ended up – I mean, sorry. Billy Crystal ended up hosting the Oscars. Right. Uh, so that was like last time there was like a big push for Eddie. And he was doing press around Tower Heist. I think he did a Rolling Stone interview around that time where he talked about uh, the animosity he felt towards SNL for allowing like David Spade to dunk oh, yeah. on him. Yep. And then after that, it's been like nothing, right? He kind of re-emerged for the SNL 40th anniversary. For 10 and did seconds. 10 seconds, didn't do any jokes. Then we're here. And he's really making a play now to have a huge comeback. Right. So he's got Dolomite is my name. Yeah, well, the other thing is that he doesn't need to do any of this. The more he does go out in the public and do interviews, the more 2019 can go back and watch Eddie Murphy Delirious and Eddie Murphy Raw. And be like, some of these jokes are not cool. Right. And they're not. And they're not. I mean, he's actually said that. Yeah. I mean, I think he's he hasn't actually apologized necessarily, but he's said, like, 
a lot of the homophobic jokes and humor. Yeah. He maybe is like, you know, it's a different time is kind of how he's like I chalking re-watched, it up. I re- re-listened it's to... Impossible to watch now. Well, I listened to, because I had Eddie Murphy... <laughs> It was a PG-13 podcast, so I had Eddie Murphy Delirious and Eddie Murphy Comedian, those tapes, and I kind of had them, at the time, I had them memorized, because that's what you did back then. You listened to tapes over and over again, and there's some foul stuff on there, which when I was in fourth grade, I thought was hilarious, but there's some, like, comes from a very dark place, and it's, yeah. it's punching down, and I, I do not uh, endorse, <laughs> but um, they were part of the landscape back then, and it would be a lot easier for Eddie Murphy just to just be rich and not worry about this. But I suspect that Rudy, this screenplay touched him. Like, as I said at the beginning, this movie is surprisingly good. It's not just funny. It's really touching. And um, you love this guy and you love what he represents, um, even if some of it is baloney. Right, you know, there's a part like at the end. I read there. It has a very high Rotten Tomatoes score. Yes, so people when, really love it. I whenever mean, like you're whenever, not alone. Yeah, whenever there's a really high Rotten Tomatoes score, I do the obvious thing: is you go and read who trashed it. Oh, and yeah, I read a review by, I don't know, some bozo. I don't know. And um, he he uh, admonished the film for kind of having a, a a PC gloss at the end. Um, and yeah, it does get a little bit like you know. Uh, about like, I feel seen by Dolomite, and it's like, come on, nobody said that when they made freaking Dolomite. You know, they were having a good time. Like it was not, but but it resonates in the movie. Right, like that moment in the movie choked me up. So you know, it worked. It worked. And print, also like print maybe the legend. Didn't, you know, and maybe he didn't have the 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 way we describe that now. With I feel seen is like a thing. But like I'm sure people maybe did actually feel seen if they didn't know how to verbalize it back yeah. then, right? Like if you're seeing Dolomite on screen, yeah. a person who's never seen like a kind of that kind of comedy directed towards you or pitched towards you, you're yeah. gonna be like, oh, uh, this is cool, and like I'm like not seeing something like this before. Yes, no, the, the so, sen- I mean like the, maybe the parlance is different, but the, the parla- notion yeah. maybe the, there's is. a there's one you'll you'll know when it, there's like yeah. one moment in the movie where they really ham up the strings, and it's like this never happened. Come on, <laughs> but but. That is the part of the movie where I got really choked right. up because I love these characters so much. So the movie friggin' works. So it's like now he's out here. Eddie Murphy is on the he's you know he's doing press. He was on Jimmy Kimmel, I think, this week. Uh, he's done interviews with Entertainment Weekly and the New York Times. He doesn't really have a lot to say. I don't know if you've I've, if you've read it. I mean, the Eddie Murphy interviews from like the '80s, like he did a Playboy interview. I think once that's like an all time where he just trashes John Landis, right, 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 just yeah, like yeah, a legendary yeah. thing. Uh, you know, in like he the, even the Rolling Stone one from a few years ago where he talks openly about like David Spade and like being yeah. like joked, hey kids, uh, falling star, I think was the joke. Or, yeah, yeah, I remember. Like that. you know, and uh, you know, nowadays he's just like he's just gonna say the same like three things. He doesn't yeah, he seem has, to wanna. There's no, there's no incentive for him to actually no participate. <laughs> but there he is. He's like on the cover of the Netflix magazine. Have you seen that on Twitter? <laughs> no. They have Netflix Q. Yeah. Like Q U E. Yeah. U E. That's yeah. how you spell Q. Q-U-E. And uh, I don't know where this exists or what, but it's on their social media platforms, and they have like a picture of Eddie Murphy. So he's out there doing yeah. stuff. He's going to host SNL in in uh, December, which was like a rare That's thing. A big deal. A huge deal. First time since he left the show th- twenty five years ago, or you know, thirty five years ago, yeah. whatever the hell it was. It's gonna be great. He's gonna do Gumby. Uh, he's gonna go ago. bananas. Right. He said he's gonna yeah. do all the old characters, oh, Gumby, fantastic. and and, and uh, you know. Um, What's his face? Mr. 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 Robinson, yeah, right? All time. Uh, and then he's got, he's really just leaning into like, you know, nowadays that's nostalgia. That's it. So his next movies are Coming to America sequel that he's doing with the same guy who did Dolomite is my name, Craig Brewer. Okay. And then he's 
in according to IMDb, we'll see if this movie ever exists, but there was a long time coming of him doing triplets, which is like a sequel to twins. Maybe oh, it never happened. And then yeah. a Beverly Hills Cop 4, again, maybe discussed and not happening. I, I, but at least Coming to America is legitimately happening. Coming to America 2 has the potential to be good if it's done right. I mean, it Brewer, could be fun. Brewer has got the goods, and depending on what the script is. And he, um, but the thing is this. Uh, you know, So he's playing the game. He's out there. And I'll tell you something. Thinking about what else have been the leading male performers yeah. this year, if he's not nominated for an Academy Award, it's a crime. Right. He's so really there you go. that good. Um, I don't think he's – I don't know that he's going to win, uh, particularly because he's up against two heavy hitters at Netflix, and this is a Netflix movie. Right. Well, that's he, the other. So he's like, up against Adam Driver in Marriage Story. We could, we could, we could like, let's, let's dive into this. That? Okay. No, no, I want to oh, yeah. dive into this, actually, because I think it's like this – category is incredibly stacked and there's also yeah. like a large amount of netflix uh movies yeah like you could actually have four of the five there's a world where you could predict four of the five best actor nominees are all netflix so it'd be you, eddie murphy yeah robert de niro in the irishman is mm-hmm. a lead character and he's great in the movie uh, i think we both des- really enjoyed him the, deservedly yeah. having praise adam driver marriage story who we talked before the show Probably the greatest actor currently working yeah. uh, in in the world. He's just an incredible talent for Marriage Story. And then Jonathan Price is the lead of The Two Popes, which I have not seen oh, yet. Oh, I haven't but, seen that uh, But that has got a lot of buzz out of Telluride and Tiff and whether or not the movie works and maybe sounds like Green Book uh, slash it's like a buddy comedy about two popes. Yeah. These are all Netflix and movies and a- Eddie Murphy now. He's in my top five. He's in your top five. It seems like he's in a lot of people's top five. There's yeah. a great story and a great narrative around Eddie Murphy and Hollywood Loves a Comeback. And even if they don't love Eddie Murphy, you know, kind of like if it's like a Stallone thing. Remember when he got nominated right, for Creed right. and then like everybody thought he was going to win. And then I was like, you know what? We don't really like Stallone yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. he said bad things in the past. I wouldn't whatever. be surprised if Murphy doesn't win. Um, but he should get but nominated. He, sh- he, he should be nominated and that's appropriate. Uh, the other thing about, you know, Oscar voters. Yeah, there's only so many hours in the day. There are Netflix is doing event uh, Well, that's true too. Like, there's uh, something happening uh, by the time this airs that will have happened in New York City. Spike Lee is presenting, and everybody's going to be there. Eddie Murphy and uh, Hannibal Burris and the whole gang that's in the film. Um, and I would imagine they're doing something similar in L.A. more than once. And then finally, uh, y- yeah, Oscar voters, they get in the mail come voting season. They get 100,000 screeners. Sure. You're going to want to put it on because there's a curiosity factor about Eddie Murphy. And once you hit play – you're not going to turn it off because right. it's friggin' funny. Well, that's the other thing. It's actually yeah. funny, and it's going to be one of those movies yeah. that I think people will actually want to watch. Yeah, when you get a it screener, doesn't feel like a chore. When, when you get a screener at home for Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a gorgeous film that you watch if you go to a screening room and watch it, it's, you know, glacially paced. And at home, when the phone's ringing and, uh, you know, you got to get dinner ready and your grandkids are coming over, eh, it's not going to happen. Right. Sorry, Portrait Hive. But um, <laughs> it's true. But I mean, Dolomite's think, yeah. gonna gonna people are gonna watch it through to the end. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so let's uh, let's take a break, Jordan, <laughs> and then I want to talk about uh, the laundromat. All right, let's uh, do it. Steven Soderbergh. So we'll be right back. Uh, stay tuned. Hey, we're back on Golden Age, a TV Guide Awards season podcast. I'm joined by Jordan Hoffman. Jordan, hello. Hi. We just spent a little while talking about Dolomite is my name, which is available on Netflix right now. Another movie available on Netflix right now that we both liked. But has not really the sheen or buzz or any kind of like prestige around it that Dolomite is my name does is Steven Soderbergh's The Laundromat, 
uh, Soderbergh's second Netflix movie of the year after High Flying Bird, which I really liked and you hated, Jordan. Hate is a strong but word. But you did not like it. I didn't respond to High yeah, Flying Yeah, you did not respond. But it was that's, okay. that's, I, that's fair. I understood what it was trying to do intellectually, sure. but what it did in actuality was put me to sleep. Right. So uh, Laundromat is based on uh, the Panama Papers, uh, basically, which if you don't know, it's like a big insurance kind of scam uh, that I really had no idea about, to be perfectly honest. Like, I don't really... I didn't. It was like kind of like, again... I had like vague notions of what it was. I knew they were bad. I knew it was bad. <laughs> I honestly thought may, I got it confused with the Pentagon Papers for a minute oh, when God, I first saw the movie being made, but now I understand what it is. Yeah. Uh, and basically, uh, it's like a kind of like a episodic film that Soderbergh made. It's written by uh, Scott C. Burns, who is a frequent collaborator of Steven Soderbergh. Uh, did the informant with him? Did side effects? I believe with him. And now also directed Scott Burns directed uh, the report, which we, is a similar kind of and, vibe. And produced by Soderbergh. And produced by Soderbergh. So they're buds. So they're pals, and the movie is very much episodic. Uh, like we said, it you know it's narrated by the two bad guys who are uh, Mossack and Fonseca, who are these two accountant lawyer types, uh, played by Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas. I actually think having the time of their life, they seem like they're really fun, and it's like kind of like they just walk you through all their crimes and even the things that aren't crimes but are really morally dubious and the way they just bilk people out of money and make sure the rich people are insulated from any kind of rules or taxes or anything like that. And the whole movie is basically about how you, me, Jordan, anybody in the world who is not a billionaire is just totally effed. Uh, the meek shall not inherit the The meek earth. shall not inherit the, the, the house. Is actually house. a line, yeah. I think, in the movie, yeah. right? And like the house is always going to win yeah. and you have no hope of beating the house. And uh, Meryl Streep is in it. She plays an old woman or an elder, older woman who loses her husband in an accident and putters around. That sequence is terrifying. By really unexpected. Again, like we'll spoil this because it's been out for like a week and was and out in theaters. And this is like five minutes into the movie. And it's also. five minutes into the movie. But her husband dies in this like capsized tour boat accident on like Lake George. Yeah. And I had no idea what was going to happen because I knew he died, obviously, because that's kind of like set up in the like the promotional materials that. But he dies because he drowns. It's just like a crazy sequence. The it's boat turns story. over. I know. Yeah, yeah, it is a true story. And then while Meryl Streep's recovering mentally from losing her husband of like 35, 39 years, uh, she realizes that all the insurance money that she thought they would have or like that the boat company, the tour company had, there is no money because it's all just a big Ponzi scheme basically. And the Masek and Fonseca is at the heart of this. Uh, and then the movie does a bunch of other episodes. There's a great kind of like in the middle of the thing, like a African family soap opera of this so rich. Good. Uh, uh, it's the guy who played uh, from Game of Thrones. Yes. Uh, the the guy from Karth, Z- Zaro Zohan Zaksha. Yes, is the character's name on Game of Thrones. Right, and he and it's and, just a wild thing. He's having an affair with his daughter's. Uh, roommate in college and they have like all these like yeah. it's a wild scene larry wilmore's in it he's oh, amazing so, good. so yeah. good as like the lawyer it's just crazy great scene and then there's like a later scene with uh in china where it's just like it turns into this wild like pretty intense thriller that includes yeah, organ like harvesting movie. and like also true graphic well, organ yeah. harvesting where you see like a, a poor woman's eyes cut out it's, it's just like for like a long time honestly like 30 <laughs> seconds maybe focused on like cutting out her cornea uh, it's, it's a, a wild movie, and then like in on top of that, there's a Panamanian secretary who's been working with Mossack and Fonseca, who it turns out is actually Meryl Streep playing that role. Uh, it's incredibly yeah. problematic, and also let's put an asterisk on that conversation. We could, we could go back to that, and then, and then she is also yeah. playing a dual role, and that's the whole movie basically. Uh, and it's like you know, you're kind of like you 
watch as the house wins. Yeah, th- this movie has been maligned critically, and I think Netflix realizes they you know, they have a lot of winners this year. Well, they, that's the thing, right? They've got The Irishman, they've got Marriage Story, they've got Dolomite. Um, they they don't need Laundromat, and um, and they kind it, of like kind of have, not kind of buried it. it, but it's like okay, they put it out last. It came out uh, last Friday. In, yeah. On Netflix, it was in theaters beforehand. Not getting the same ballyhoo. You, you know, you mentioned earlier that there's there was a uh, there's a big event with Spike Lee hosting Eddie Murphy and stuff. Yeah, there is yeah. no event for Laundromat. I can with tell Meryl you Street. a little a little uh, intel. As being an insider, yeah. uh, working with the yes, uh, New York Film Critics Circle, there's more push behind High Flying Bird than there is the Laundromat. Right. Well, I actually think High Flying Bird is. I know you disagree. I actually yeah. think High Flying Bird is a better movie, and it's Most like, do, yeah. and it's like I do, but I do really enjoy the Laundromat. It reminded me a lot of honestly Buster Scruggs from last year, where it's like an episodic thing. You could watch yeah. it. Some of the parts work better than others. Yeah. And there's like you know a very light cohesive line through all the stories, but there's no real connection no. beyond the narration. Yeah. You know what and, I mean, and, like, and I feel that, and I and I uh, I think I mentioned this in my review in TVGuide.com. Yes. That um, it did. It, Laundromat did not do so hot with critics because uh, uh, there were the screenings happened traditionally in screening yes. rooms, and I think it played at one of the festivals. It was at Venice Film Festival, and, I and um, this is a case of a movie that will do better at home, right? Uh, in terms of with an like, I think I think I think it's better to watch this one on Netflix. I really so do. So I saw it, it is. You can hit pause because yeah. there are chapters in it. So I saw it and, twice. Uh, really, I, the uh, only one. I'm the only person <laughs> on earth who's seen it twice. Not even Steven Soderbergh has seen it twice. Uh, I saw it in a theater. On the Upper West Side, uh, just me and an afternoon I went, uh, and it was me and a bunch of old people who have nothing to do, uh, and it was great. And then I watched it at home on a Friday night when uh, my wife was out. And again, you're right, it plays great at home. I thought it was a little, it was a little slow in the in the theater. Yeah. But when I watched it at home, uh, I highly enjoyed it. it. It is very watchable, and you're right, it's only 90 minutes, so it's like these segments are like 10 or 15 minutes chunks, so you can watch it. Maybe I'm going to go get some ice cream. Yeah. You know, and, and then I'm going to come back and like, oh, this part's fun. And I don't think Soderbergh and Burns would disagree with that. No, I think and I that, think that, that's kind of like what they were going yeah. for with it. Uh, and, and um, you know, because it, it, although it's very serious, I mean, the, the bilking of, of the populace is a serious topic, it's very lighthearted. I mean, it, it's supposed to get you angry in that kind of network yeah. way if you want to scream and yell. And the last shot of the film, an epic long take, which brings up the Meryl Streep issue, is meant to be like a rally to the cause because um, it quotes verbatim um, like a leaked memo or a, so like that Panama uh, the person who blew the whistle on yes. Masek and Fonseca is an anonymous person they called John Doe in the movie and uh, you know he or she wrote like a manifesto alongside right. of it and explained why they were doing this and kind of like squarely puts the blame on the United States and it's kind of like a matrixy like you know wake up sheeple type thing right it kind of ends and then it ends with a call for um campaign finance reform which is not campaign finance reform which is not mentioned once earlier in the film and i saw some people be like why is this movie about that i'm like well it's all all problems lead to that because it's all related you know but that last shot is interesting because um there's a lot of breaking of the fourth wall in the movie in general um interesting stuff with like graphics on the screen and maps and things like that and in this last shot where you see that they're on a movie set Meryl Streep, who's been playing the second role as the Panamanian secretary, which, um, if you're a dunce like me, 
uh, and didn't read the trades, I didn't know it was her because she's wearing a fake nose. She's she's so she's dressed in like she's got a very uh, big glasses, a big fake nose, yeah. and like kind of like a dark wig, and she's got uh, padding on her body to make her look <laughs> she, bigger than she actually is. She's got pillows in her ass. She's got pillows in her ass and like on her chest, <laughs> yeah. uh, and she's got a very heavy accent. Yeah, as well. And I honestly, like, I didn't really think much of it. Like, she does play kind of like a comic relief character. She's like the wack, well, not wacky secretary, but she's the secretary who's kind of goofy. Yes. Um, and she's not in it that much. She's in no. maybe like three scenes, and she's not a major, major, ac- no. major but you do character. Like the character. The character comes into the movie because, so one of the things with like the. On the phone. Well, on the, the phone. The, street, too, the, the real the Meryl Streep calls. The, her. the character Meryl yeah. Streep is playing calls the secretary. Uh, to, to force a complaint and the reason that secretary is even in that role is because the previous so one of the things like they talk about shell corporations all these things Masek and Fonseca as the movie posits is that they were saying like there was all these different shell companies for rich people to like have a company that doesn't really do anything except hold their money and their secrets basically and then uh, you know there are presidents of these companies that could be 500 people 500 there's one person over 500 companies right. it's just somebody who signs just signs to papers. sign the papers and yeah. the woman who meryl streep gets the the second meryl streep gets her job from dies in a weird convoluted right. circumstance it's like a bus, a like bus, a bus hits, hits a, a there's like a line. scene right, there's like a scene of they're driving through the ill-repaired streets of panama and uh a bus hits a power line and she ends up dying, basically, in a really weird fashion. And that promotes the Meryl Streep character, the second character. And then the other Meryl Streep character calls this character and they have a conversation. Yeah. Anyway. So they're supposed to be like parallel because, you know, an accident brought them sure. together. And the the other, the one who's a secretary, she's not a bad person. She's just sort of caught up in the middle of this. And the main Meryl Streep character, who's basically the hero of the film, like she she was just living her life and it suddenly discovered this injustice. Um so yeah, at the end of the movie, you discover that the Panamanian woman is Meryl Streep in, in ostensibly brown face, yes. you know, and that's not really cool to do. Um, and I I believe that the re like the whole reason Soderbergh did it, I think, is to make this sort of parallel symbolism that I just mentioned, and also because the last shot's really cool because they're walking through the movie set and there's green screens and there's like trucks yeah, around. Yeah, you see her on a movie and set she, and Meryl is taking off the makeup and then she takes off the other character's makeup, right? right? But you don't even realize that she had like a wig on right. and like, you know... Very stagey. And different voice, like to, to sound... You know, she's doing like two different voices in the movie because the real Meryl Streep actually sounds different than all right. the characters. and looks much younger than looks, the other character. And, and does. And then like it ends with Meryl Streep direct addressing the camera. Yeah, so it's a very cool shot. Yes. And uh, probably took a long time to rehearse and she's, and she's reading the manifesto and it's... Like on an on an intellectual level, like I get it. It's pretty darn cool. Um, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I am not of of Central American heritage, so uh, I'm not really going to speak to to that. But I can just say that a lot of my colleagues and just people in general online felt that this was uh, not a good idea. And one has to question: Was it worth? This shot, because that's the only reason it's there right. is for that I last mean, shot. I will, I, you could have just cast a regular. Hispanic woman to play the role and just not had that last shot and or do just started else that last shot with Meryl Streep's other character, right? Because if she's still taking off her, ma- you know what I mean. You don't need the third. You don't need the third yeah. level necessarily. They have not really talked about this. Like Steven Soder, they have not. They did not promote. And this is kind of goes back to what we were saying. They did not really promote this movie at all, right? Like Steven Soderbergh actually did a ton of press around High Flying Bird. He was on yeah. Bill Simmons' podcast. He did interviews with, like David Sims. I think talked to him for The Atlantic. Like a lot of people talked to him for High Flying Bird. For this movie, not as much. I can't say I've read a lot of interviews with him about uh, the laundromat. 
Meryl, not uh, Meryl Streep, not that she's doing interviews anyway. They kind of not done a lot of press around this, so they haven't actually spoken to why uh, this decision was made. And also, like, the fact that the movie doesn't really, it's not, uh, you know, whether I like it, like we said, you do too. I think overall, I think it's a good movie, but uh, no one is talking about it except to talk about the brown face that Meryl yeah. Streep is in. And they've kind of just now, they being Netflix, has kind of just been like, okay, we're going to just. We're just going to move on. They don't need it. They don't need Netflix it. Netflix can close the door on one it. One of the things that I find interesting about this current time is that, you know, movies cannot exist. The laundromat in like three months' time will basically not exist, right? It's not going to be promoted on Netflix's front page. <laughs> it's not going to be airing to on cable or HBO or something. Yeah. It only exists on Netflix. And if Netflix doesn't promote it, then you are required to go find it. You could, they could even delete it if they wanted to. I don't think they, they could. They probably can't. But I mean, yeah, like, the only people who were ever going to watch the laundromat are Soderbergh completists and because or, Soderbergh right. has made a lot of terrific movies, and there's somebody who's going to. Go to his page and on Google Wikipedia it or search it on and Netflix. Just yeah. Go down the and line. And like it reminded me of Myrowitz stories with Noah Baumbach made for Netflix two years ago. Yeah. Uh it didn't go anywhere for awards. It has an amazing Adam Sandler performance. I know we're all hop up on Uncut Gems, yeah. which I know you loved and I loved. It's coming later this year from A24 into theaters. Sandler's amazing. It's like the best thing I've ever so seen. Yeah. He's so good. But he's actually also, so good in Meyerwood stories. I and love I love Meyerwood stories. I think it's a fantastic movie. But it doesn't. Ex the thing is, it like doesn't no. exist, right? I, yeah, like, it's weird. It, it, I actually, if I may, tut tut for one. I yeah. saw that at its world premiere at the Cannes Film yeah, Festival. Yeah, wow, nice. And it was a big deal at Cannes. Everybody loved it. And then it was part of Netflix's first serious year yes. of making honest to god award contender movies. I mean, out of the gate, uh, I think their first one. Uh, Beasts of No Nation, right? Beasts of No Nation was like, one where people were like, oh, we have to pay attention to Netflix exactly. now. They're and making it was like, movies. Yeah, they're making really good movies, but like, oh, it's too weird. Like, ah. Uh, and and, it, and even Bombeck didn't really know what to make of it. I saw yeah. it at the New York Film Festival, and I remember him being like, I don't really want, I wanted this to be in the movies. Like, he was still coming off of movies being, his movies being in theaters and right. like a traditional thing. Now, he obviously enjoyed working with Netflix enough that he did his next movie with them. Maybe that's because they have a nice checkbook that they're writing him fat checks from but it's not like marriage story costs a lot of money and i'm sure like he could have probably spun that up at another studio but he actually liked seemingly how netflix treated his I film think probably what happened with netflix and marriage story was like they're like look if you want to get this cast you want to get scarlett johansson and adam driver and the the really you know alan alda and all these really cool supporting players like you need the dough right and nobody else is going to get right. in the dough but the thing is like when these movies don't work uh, for whatever like work from a, an award standpoint they just i just wonder I, I, I this is maybe a larger conversation, and we'll have you on again sometime to talk about this. Oh, too. do you want to talk about the bubble of Netflix and how this is a house of cards is eventually going to come crashing down? I mean, a little, Why, but yes. also like, <laughs> also just like the movie, like none of this stuff. Like, there's no way for people who just would normally find. Like, how do you, if you're a young person in 2019 who, like myself, like when I was a kid, I, I just I understand I'm going to sound an, a thousand years old, and yeah. like you will agree that I am old, uh, <laughs> but like. I used to just be able to flip around yeah. and you would find stuff that maybe you shouldn't be watching or you don't know what it is and you just watch it and you're like, oh, that was cool. Yeah. And I can name probably like a thousand movies that I saw that way for the first time. Doesn't happen and anymore. then it can't happen, right? Because you're not, if you're only, if it's a Netflix movie that's not yeah. being promoted by Netflix actively at the time, you cannot find it you and you're not going to just stumble upon you it. You need so, curated feeds. You need to go to websites like TVGuy.com. Right. I mean, that's what it is, right? And, and you, tell like and and you you need um articles written on sites like tvguide.com for when the next movie comes out that's a little bit like the laundromat 
to so, hey, remind remember, readers. go back and watch a little um, I mean, one example, I mean, it's kind of soon, but, you know, The Report, Scott Z. Burns' yes. other movie. Which so is, that's going to be an Amazon movie. Amazon, right. it comes out in theaters for two weeks, and then Amazon just throwing it up right. on Thanksgiving And weekend. that is, um, The Report's a great movie. Yes. M- much better than Laundromat. Yes. So, uh, but, but let's say, let's pretend that the, for saying this conversation, The Report were to come out in two years. Sure. That would be the opportunity that people go, oh, there was this thing called the laundromat. Right, another Scotty Burns joint. I completely joint. forgot about yeah. that. Where is it? You know, Netflix. you can probably still do that in November because people have forgotten about right. the laundromat already. I mean, like, it's right. just like. It's true. It's, it's a wild No, you need curated thing. lists and you need, you need people, uh, dare I say, tastemakers, dare I say, gatekeepers that are there to help. Yeah, I mean, Help like the thing, I just find it fascinating navigate too, the waters because, like, I was looking. I love uh, scores, movie scores. Always have. I like, thought you were talking about the uh, the bar on the no, east side. No, 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 no. Right, that that was in out. Hustlers. Yeah, we'll cut that, that out. out. Okay. I love movie soundtracks, and uh, one of the things I do is like I want to go back and listen. So I've been listening uh, on repeat to the Parasite score, which is just an incredible uh, oh, score. Really? Love it. It's okay. on Spotify. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, oh, I highly, I actually thought the Laundromat scores by Dave Holmes, who's done a lot of work with uh, Steven Soderbergh. He did all the Oceans movies, and it kind of has that like jazzy yeah. kind of like riff to it. Uh, and it's not available anywhere. It just does again another thing that just doesn't exist. Wow. But like Dolomite is my name. It does that one does exist. There is a score for that, like a, a couple of Craig Robinson songs, and just like the composer who did the music. This is what you listen to while you work sometimes on your headphones. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, work uh, in quotes uh, but like yeah so I'm like it's just yeah. amazing to me that some like it's weird to me that uh, one of the things I think we'll have to grapple with increasingly is how do these movies actually exist it's beyond award season and just like where how yeah. do, what is the what is the shelf life of these movies uh, once they're not an awards player it's a serious issue um well, no, it's not. The environment's a serious issue. It's a serious issue for people who love movies because right. it's a major change in the way that movies are consumed that has not been addressed other than, you know, oh, we hope websites are handling it because there is not a lot of curation going on at these over-the-top no, sites with one exception. And this is a good so segue. So let's segue, Jordan. You you know, I segue? love this. Uh, we're going to end the show here with uh, one great wreck from Jordan, but he's got two, one and a half. I, I got think. one and a half. So I, let's go. We're gonna since this is the inaugural yeah, issue yeah, of, um, of Golden Age. Yes. Um, I want to give a shout out. Nobody wants to pay for another OTT. God no. knows it's the last thing you want to do. But I do need to give a shout out to Criterion Channel. I can hear you rolling your eyes all the way from here. Oh, Christ. Here comes another movie critic who wants to talk with a goddamn Criterion Channel. Boring black and white movies from Japan from 1946. Give I love that you break. can just like really do my inner monologue right now. That's great. I don't know how you did that. Uh, the Criterion Channel, by and large, its main uh, bread and butter is sort of the world cinema classics and that is an in, sometimes a uh, barrier of entry uh, a little intimidating and i get it it's like telling people oh you should listen to jazz and like oh my god listen to jazz where do i start now the good news is this um like i'll take a movie that you've heard of that maybe you've never seen i don't mean you chris because you're a righteous man i mean the listener who's you know Disgusting slob out there, you know, supposed to be doing his work listening to a podcast. Uh, the Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. Oh, God, I've heard of it, but give me a break. Um, Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini. Ugh. Uh, the Seven Seal by Ingmar Bergman. Oh, God, shoot me in the head. These are three, like, foundational films of Film School 101 stuff, and you've heard of them. The reason you've heard of them is that they're pretty damn good, and they're all on, and they're watchable. They're not as boring as you think. They're all on the front page of the Criterion Channel, which does a really good job of curating 
stuff from the canon that is a, that deserves your attention. Um, and when you go to Criterion Channel, the first thing they have is they do have special stuff week to week. They actually program every day. If you want to be a guy who watches Criterion every day of the year, they have like different programming every day. They make it like tonight on Criterion. They have double features. They got shorts. They got interviews. But they have a bar called uh, Essential. And you go down that list, and you're, you're going to find, I guarantee you, you're going to like 80% of those movies. They're there for a reason. They're essential for a reason. So give it a shot. Uh, so that's my little pitch for That's uh, good. Criteria I mean, like that Channel. kind of definitely does dovetail with what we were just saying. Yeah. It's Some, a good way to curate and get people who maybe would not find something to find something. Right. And then let's say you do – all right, so maybe Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman isn't for you. But uh, Eight and a Half by Federico Fellini kind of is. And that movie's funny. It's sexy and funny right. and, and beautiful. Really entertaining. Pretty modern, yeah. basically. So you go, oh, movie. I've heard of this guy, Fellini, uh, but I never saw it. So I'm going to click on his name. Criterion's got 20 of his movies. And then you can go from there. So that's that's kind of my global recommendation. They're doing a lot of great stuff. They do curate new stuff, too. There are new things that enter the Criterion Collection. You know, Wes Anderson is part of their deal and that style of movie. Um, something else that I want to recommend, though, as a movie from this year that's yeah. new, that's streaming on Hulu, is a movie called Annie Era that nobody saw. It's a science fiction movie. No, I don't Con- even know this one. Nobody knows this movie. I'm like, I, I love this Spell movie. it for us. So I A-N-I-A-R-A. Okay. Annie-ara. It's, okay. it's Swedish. Oh, boy. But it's science Jesus. fiction. I know. Okay. It's no, Swedish. no, go ahead. I'm listening. It's science fiction, and it looks cool. And the basic premise is it's about um, – it's, it's, it's Titanic in space. Now, it's basically – um, uh, Earth has fallen apart. Uh, wealthy people are taking bo- uh, ships that take them from uh, uh, you uh, from Earth to a colony on Mars. Some kind of mishap happens, and the ship, which is basically like picture the Titanic, picture a giant cruise ship, a city in space, uh, is lost in space for God knows how long. The society falls apart, and it's wild, and it gets weird and freaky, and it's there's a lot of weird sci-fi elements to it. There's some some interesting um, high-tech stuff. There's some weird sex stuff going on, some religious stuff. And it's a good movie. It's called Aniara, and it was um, uh, Magnolia's genre arm. And if they're listening, I apologize, but they marketed it all wrong. They marketed it as just another kind of Fantastic Fest, Fantasia, Alamo Drafthouse movie. And no disrespect to that brand, which I love, it's not really that movie. It's a smart, hmm. really clever and beautiful and, and emotional science fiction film that should have gotten the attention of the more elite critics. Wow. And, um, and it's on Hulu right now. It's on Hulu right now. So That's pretty cool. uh, if you if you if you have Hulu, you should yeah. watch it. And it's probably, you know, two ninety nine rental on Amazon and, and and God knows where else. So that's Annie Arrow. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. It's wow. in the top ten for sure. Nice. Up there that's with great. Dolomite is my name. Which you love. And, that's streaming and, now on Netflix. And the report, which we'll talk we'll about. We'll talk a few about weeks. It next time. So Jordan, what do you got to plug? Any anything? Uh, uh, well, any, you your know, Twitter account or my, anything my, you want to? My work can be read yes. uh, on a semi regular basis here at tvguide.com. Yes. Com. And um, uh, actually, we talked about Criterion. I did do a primer for Criterion for you guys yeah. when it launched, probably back in April or May. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I write movie criticism for a number of different uh, uh, news outlets. And you can find me on Twitter at, at J Hoffman, J-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm a follower, and uh, you always you never fail to make me laugh, and you have never said anything that made me want to mute oh, uh, your, wow. your account. So that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's an honor. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Jordan, for stopping by. Great. This has been the first episode of Golden Age. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your friends, and we'll see you next time.